This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9, if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers to have fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in this nation. We thank you for those who have paid the ultimate price to uh, gain and preserve our freedoms. We continue to pray for those in the armed services, those who are serving overseas, that you would uh, watch over them, that you would give our military leaders wisdom, that you would give our political leaders wisdom and that they might be able to have the right information in order to develop their their tactics, their strategy, in order to maintain uh, the, the objective, to gain the objective, and eventually that our young men and women would be returning home. Father, we pray for those in this congregation that are overseas, that you would keep them safe, watch over them. We pray that they might be able to have an impact as they share the gospel with those around them. Father, we pray for us as we gather together to study your word that we might not take these things lightly. We live in a time of tremendous turmoil in our country ideologically where there is a tremendous assault against biblical truth. And we know that it is so easy to lose freedom once we have cut ourselves free from the anchor of absolute truth and the anchor of your word. So, Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We continue to pray that there would be men raised up by you who will faithfully teach your word and that believers would be responsive to that teaching and apply it consistently in their lives. Father, we pray that we would respond to the teaching of your word in like manner and that we would take up the challenge to advance to the high ground as believers. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing a study today in 3 John, but actually we are now in Isaiah 40. I never like to let anyone lose the context of our study. When we divert down various side paths, I always like to bring you back to understand why we are doing what we are doing. In 3 John, in verses 3 and 4, John encourages Gaius by saying, I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth in you, that just as you walk by means of the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk by means of the truth. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that we walk by faith, and not by sight. We walk by means of faith. Faith is the act of trusting God, the act of relying upon His Word and resting upon His Word. So we walk by means of faith, but that faith always has an object. It's not faith in faith. There's so many people who walk around and they think that, well, if you just believe that things will work out, just have faith. And really that's an empty faith. It's a faith in an impersonal universe that somehow things will work out. It's a faith in faith itself. It's a faith 
and the powers of optimism and positive thinking, and that is uh, bred a heresy in the church called the positive confession movement. But it is not faith in the Scriptures. And faith for the believer who is interested in the Bible, that faith has its object in the Word of God. And the use of faith in, in its direction towards the Word of God is what we call the faith rest drill. And so we are taking a step away from Third John to examine this whole mechanic of walking by means of the truth and asking the question, how do we use the faith rest drill? And we're looking at a number of promises, some of our favorite promises, to learn how to execute the faith rest drill. Now, we've taught faith rest drill many times, and there's three basic steps that we're going to develop as we look at each of these promises. The first is to claim a promise. Step one, we have to claim a promise. We have to mix our faith with a promise. In step two, we begin to think through the doctrinal rationales that are embedded in the promise. Every single promise is based on a certain line of reasoning. And that's what a rationale is. It's a line of reasoning where you move from major premise to minor premise to conclusion. And that leads to the third step, which is where we take the conclusion from the rationale and we make that our own. This is not a quick process. This is not a fast process. There are times in life when you can take the faith rest drill and you're faced with a certain crisis or a certain problem in life and you can claim a promise and move right through it with a certain degree of rapidity. There are other crises and problems that we face in life where it is a momentary battle where every single minute you have to go back to step one and you have to claim that promise and you have to take time to conscientiously force yourself to think through the doctrinal rationales embedded in that promise. Sometimes you're doing it every half hour, every hour, and again and again and again, and at the end of the day you're going to say, I must be such a failure in my spiritual life because I'm not any better tonight than I was this morning, and all I've done was work my way through this promise a thousand and one times today, and I don't have any more peace right now than I did this morning. Well, that's part of growth. It's part of learning how to use that skill because there are certain times when we come under testing, it challenges us at the very core of who we are, our hopes, our dreams, Everything around us, our perception of our security, our perception of what God is doing in our lives, where it just seems like God has completely deserted us and left us hanging out to dry, and all we can do is claim those promises. And what happens, though, is as you go through life, and you move through that circumstance and get the perspective of a few months or a few years, you'll look back and realize how much you grew during that period of time. While you're in the midst of that battle, that growth is going to seem not only to be imperceptible, but in many cases re reverse growth, and you're going to think you're just failing at every turn. But what you're doing, as long as you persevere and endure in, in using the faith rest drill and, and claiming those promises, is that when you come out the other end, you will realize how your faith was strengthened. It's just like when you go to the gym, if you're working out trying to lose weight, sometimes you hit a plateau when you're trying to lose weight, and that plateau may last three or four weeks or even, even five or six weeks, and you might even... Uh, as long as you're following the diet and working out, you might even put on a few pounds. And you just think, why do I do this? And the goal is just, you just hang in there because eventually there will be a breakthrough, and eventually something will change. And if you're going to the gym, you're working out, you're, you're going through a whole battery of exercises, that day-to-day -day you may not see any noticeable difference. But then after six months or after a year, you see a tremendous change. So... Using the faith rest drill is not always simple, and don't deceive yourself into thinking that it is just simply reciting a promise or rehearsing a principle in your mind, and then everything's just going to be uh, smoothed out, and you're just going to move th sail through the situation as if there's no problem. 
uh, that is not how we grow in any area. So we have these three stages, and we're going to take each of these stages, work them through in the context of a promise. Now, the first promise that we're looking at is Isaiah 40:31. Isaiah 40:31, which is a well-known promise, which we frequently quote. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, when we come to this passage, the first thing we do is when you're going to exercise a faith rest drill is to claim a promise. And last time, I emphasized the fact that before you can claim a promise or part of a promise or, or just a phrase from Scripture that sticks in your mind, it has to be in your mind. And that means that you should be engaged in a regular uh, procedure for Scripture memory. Scripture memory is important. It does has any time you're in life and you're forcing yourself to concentrate and memorize anything, it's going to have positive benefits on your on your thinking, on your uh, cognitive skills, on your memory. But if you're memorizing Scripture, it'll do all of the above. Plus, it forces your mind to think through spiritual truth, and it has value for your spiritual life. So it's important to be in some sort of scripture memory uh, plan, and you should have one for yourself and plan and lay out chapters, lay out verses to memorize. Go through the Faith Rest Drill book, the uh, Christian at Ease book, take a look at those promises, and then pick five or six that you are going to memorize and try to do one or two a week. I said last time that the procedure should be that you categorize them. So if you're talking about fear, you'd say, Fear, uh, Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 41.10. You categorize it, recite the category, recite the verse, the reference at the beginning, cite the verse, and then close with the reference. Do that every time. Do it five or six times every time you do it for the first several days until it becomes embedded in your memory, and that will help you remember the reference. It will help you remember the category, and it's a good procedure. So when we look at come to the promise, we realize that we have to have these promises in our thinking. It is not simply enough to just latch on to a principle. The principles of Scripture are always presented in historical context. They are embedded in a life situation. They don't just hang out there as abstract principles. In fact, the, many people never memorize Scriptures. They just say, well, I remember the principle. Well, if all you had to do was remember the principles, God wouldn't have given promises. I get fed up with people who try to rationalize into mental laziness and not memorize Scripture. Oh, I just know the principle. Well, if that's all you needed to know, then God would have given you a book of principles instead of Scripture the way they were revealed and with promises. So we need to memorize the promises because they reflect the Word of God. Now, as you start off and you're claiming the promise, you start off by just thinking through various things about the promise. This is what the Bible refers to as meditation. You're just putting your mental fingers around that that promise to get a good grip of what is being said. You have to do that before you can get to the next stage, which is understanding the doctrinal rationales. Now, we started this last time, but I want to go back through and hit some of the high points because it's been a couple of weeks. Now, if we look at Isaiah 40:31, we note that it starts off with the word but, which indicates a contrast, a contrast with the previous verse. You go back to Isaiah 40, verse 30. We read, Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But those who wait on the Lord. So there's a contrast between the strength of the youths and in the Hebrew, the term youth is the word na'ar. The word vigorous young men is the word bahur. And it pictures for us young men who are strong, agile, athletic, men who have tremendous endurance. And yet what we're talking about here is a situation where even those who, have, who are at the peak of their physical abilities, their physical energy, 
are overwhelmed by the details of life, the circumstances of life, and physical strength and youth and energy is not enough to handle the situation. It calls upon a different source of power. So the contrast is with the natural strength and power we have, the natural abilities that we have to face and handle problems in life. Then in verse then this next phrase is those who wait on the Lord. I pointed out last time that this is the Hebrew verb kava. The Hebrew verb kava looks like this. Q-A-V-A-H. And it was used to be translated with the primary idea of waiting. And it was thought that the root of this word had something to do with weaving a rope. And what you will often find in books is the idea of faith grows one element at a time and you weave it together and that eventually produces a strong, stout rope that can handle any pressure. Well, that makes a wonderful illustration and it preaches nicely, but uh, and it's based upon the uh, an earlier understanding of the language and the meaning of kava, but current scholarship rejects that as the root idea of kava, and the idea is more that of hope, more that of hope. And hope in the Old Testament is in the New Testament, and the Scripture has the idea of a confident certainty, a confident expectation. So it's not simply the idea of waiting in the sense of being passive, but it is waiting in the sense of a confidence, a sure and steady certainty that God is working behind the scenes and eventually uh, things will work their way out and God will bring about uh, the execution of his justice in the life of the believer and the resolution of the problem in, in the believer. Now this concept of waiting with the idea of hope is embedded in a number of other promises. And this is something that you should do if you're studying a promise and you want to work through the promise a little bit and try to gain a greater understanding of it, is look at the key verb or the key idea, and you can get a Strong's Concordance, which gives you a number by every word. You look up the word wait, and you go down to Psalm uh, I mean, to Isaiah chapter 40, and you find Isaiah 40, 31, and you look at the, the citation there, and on the side there will be a number. And that number goes back to a, to a dictionary, Hebrew dictionary, in the back of the, in the, back of the uh, concordance, and, you, and that tells you what the Hebrew word is. But you can look at that word, and let's say it's 3997. You look through that whole list of, of wait, because there may be two or three different Hebrew words for waiting. And you look at all the other places where you have that one word, let's say the number is 3997, and that gives you other, other passages where that word is, that Hebrew word is used. And so that can then flesh out in your mind the idea of waiting. Let's go look at some other passages where the Bible talks about waiting. For example, Psalm 39.7, which reads, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So here you have in the parallelism of the passage, it's really an emblematic parallelism where you have a question in the first line and then an expansion in the answer in the second line that waiting is parallel to hope. And the, the idea of confidence being placed in God allows us to relax and wait patiently in a situation for God to work. Psalm 130 verse 5 also has this same idea of hope in the parallelism. There we read, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. I want you to notice the parallel there. First, In the first line, the waiting has as its object the covenant God of Israel. The covenant God of Israel who is faithful to his promises to Israel. In the second line, the object of hope is in his word. So we don't just trust God in some sort of abstract way. You trust God 
in terms of what he has revealed about himself and revealed in his word. So once again, we reinforce this idea that faith always has, excuse me, faith always has his word as its object. It's not just some sort of abstract principle. Psalm 25 verse 3 continues to expand our concept of kavah. Uh, for indeed, none of those who wait for you shall be ashamed. What a reassurance. If we're waiting on the Lord, he will never fail us. There's no reason to be ashamed, no reason to lose confidence, no reason to be embarrassed. In contrast, those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. But the believer relaxes, he does what's right, he follows the procedures of Scripture, and waits upon God to bring about the consequences. Psalm 25.5 repeats the idea of waiting. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. An expression of confidence in God based on his revelation in terms of truth. So we take that back to our basic idea of 3 John 3 and 4, that we walk by means of truth, and that necessitates waiting and resting in the Lord. See, there are two elements to the faith rest drill. There is an active sense and a passive sense. The active sense is that we do whatever the promise says to do. For example, pray without ceasing. Or in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds. So what do you do there? What you do is you pray with thanksgiving. And then there's a passive sense. See, I don't create that peace. I don't say, okay, be peace, peaceful, be calm, be relaxed. I focus on the promise. I do what the promise says to do. And then in the passive, I'm waiting for God to bring about the consequences or the results that are promised. So we have this, two, these, this twofold sense of an active idea fulfilling the, any commandment or or condition that's embedded there, and then a passive sense in which we relate, we wait and relax so that God can bring about uh, the solution to the problem. So the psalmist says in Psalm 25, 5, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, for you I wait all the day. Then in verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. The waiting is based upon an understanding of the character of God. And what we'll see is one of the major rationales that undergirds the faith rest drill is the essence of God rationale. And in the essence of God, you work your way through the attributes of God and then apply that to the situation, which is exactly what we'll see in is the context of Isaiah chapter 40. Another verse that uses the verb kavah is Psalm 27:14. Wait for the Lord. See, that's the passive idea. Just relax and wait. God's going to work out the situation, whatever it may be. It may be a health crisis. It may be a health crisis that goes on for weeks, for months, for years. What you are to do in that situation is just relax and trust the Lord. He's in control. And that may be the precise area in which you need to be tested for your spiritual growth. Somebody else is tested in some other area. Sometimes we chafe at the testing that comes in our life. Why me? Why doesn't God take this away? Well, God has specifically tailor-made each area of adversity for your life and for my life because the end result is to produce in us the character of Jesus Christ. So Psalm 27:14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Now the concept of heart here relates to your thinking in the core area of your soul. 
Be strong and let your heart, that is your thinking, take courage. This is not talking about emotion. Emotion doesn't produce courage. This is talking about thinking. The only way you have courage in the midst of a crisis is to think on the basis of objective absolutes. And once you get involved in emotion, whether it is uh, some sort of panic attack and you get involved in emotional sins such as anger or bitterness or resentment or lose your temper or whether it's a more uh, uh, positive emotion such as sentimentalism or some other form of a positive emotion like that, as soon as you start making decisions based on emotion, based on sentimentality, based on anger, based upon resentment, you can't have courage. You are going to start making mistakes, and one mistake will pile up upon another, and you will uh, fail the test. We're to be strong and let your heart, your thinking take courage, which also brings in the idea of endurance, long-term obedience. Yes, wait for the Lord. And then Psalm 37, 34 reiterates this idea, wait for the Lord and keep His way. You see, there's the two ideas. Waiting for the Lord is the passive idea where we relax and rest in God's control of the circumstances. And keeping His way is the active sense. You don't just relax and say, well, something's going to happen. God's going to take care of it as if it's just sort of some sort of mindless uh, turning over to some impersonal force, but it involves at the same time walking according to the mandates and the procedures of Scripture. So there's a passive sense and an active sense. Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. See, the exaltation to inherit the land is a long-range future destiny. And if you don't reach the point in your spiritual maturation where you are living today in light of eternity, where we have a personal sense of our eternal destiny, then it's difficult to learn how to wait for the Lord. And if you're a new believer, a young believer in the Lord, then it becomes difficult to wait on the Lord because waiting means I've got to have some sort of long-term goal in mind. That's what hope is. It's that confident expectation that God is going to eventually work things out on the basis of his integrity, and it may not have ultimate resolution in my lifetime. That ultimate resolution may not come until the judgment seat of Christ and the establishment of the millennial kingdom, but eventually it will work itself out and there will be a resolution of all injustice and all inequities. Psalm 52.9 brings the idea of waiting as it relates to the essence of God and His character. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name. And we've seen again and again how the concept of your name or the concept of the name of something in the Scripture relates to its essence or its character. So the phrase waiting on your name has the idea of hoping or being confident in the character of God, understanding who and what God is as the sovereign creator God of the universe who is working out uh, a plan and who has a plan for my life and will work eventually work all things together for good, Romans 8.28. I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. And this brings in into the discussion, something we'll see in Isaiah 40, and that is that eventually in any crisis you run into a life, anytime you're hit with, with some level of testing, whether it has to do with a health test, whether it has to do with a financial test, whether it has to do with some sort of relational test in, in terms of uh, marriage or in terms of family, whatever that testing may be, when it is a serious test, the one thing everybody does, we all have done this, is why did God let this happen to me? We're going to see that is even expressed in, in Isaiah chapter 40. Why did God let this happen to me? God, isn't God fair? Isn't God just? This is somehow unfair of God. What's the matter? Is he asleep at the switch? Did he forget what's going on? Is he too busy taking care of world affairs over in the Middle East that he forgot about me over here? 
And that is, and the, the challenge is that we somehow think that what has happened is a breach of the justice of God. So ultimately, every time you get in a crisis, one thing that's going to come up is the issue of the justice and integrity of God and His goodness. And this is what the psalmist says, I will wait on your name for it is good. And because we understand that God is going to work all things uh, out according to His integrity, that we can relax even though we may not see it in this lifetime. So let's look at the context of Isaiah chapter 40. We go to the context. Go back to verse 28. Here we read, have you not known, have you not heard? So there are two rhetorical questions here related to knowledge. Notice that this is given in a poetic format. So they are a form of synonymous parallelism that are designed to call the reader's or the listener's attention to the fact that he should know something, and in fact he actually does, but he is not applying it. This is what happens so often when we are in some sort of crisis, is that we know it, we've been taught it, but we're not applying it at the moment. Instead, we're pushing the panic button, or we're giving up, or we're blaming God. Have you not heard? Have you, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. Okay. Stage one of the faith rest drill is to claim the promise. So you look at the promise. You understand what it means that, that when you read verse 31, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And we looked at that word last time and saw that that means to exchange. It's not that, we, that you, you get extra strength, but that you get a totally new source of power. You exchange your human strength for divine strength. And the result is mounting up with wings as eagles, running and not growing weary, and walking and not fainting. In other words, there is endurance in the midst of the test. Now, the second stage of the faith rest drill is to find out what the rationale is behind the promise. To do that, you have to go to the context. So we see the rationale developed back in verse 28. Eventually, we're going to have to go to the context of the whole chapter. But right here we see the development of the rationale. It develops from an understanding of the essence of God. So this is the essence of God rationale. Now, for this, you need to make sure you understand the attributes of God. So you should have embedded deeply on the circuits of your brain the essence box. God is sovereign. He is perfect righteousness. He is absolute justice. He is love, and He is eternal life. Then we have the three O's. He is omniscient, which has to do with knowledge. God knows all things. He knows all the knowable and all the possible and all the potential. He is omnipotent, which means He is able to do whatever He desires to do. There is nothing that God desires to do that is too great or too much for His, his power. And He is omnipresent which means that he is present to every aspect of the universe, every point in the universe, at every moment in time. Fourth, he is, in this column, fourth, he is immutable, which means he never changes, and finally, he is veracity. Now, these ten attributes, five in each column, summarize the essence of God. Now, that's not every, every attribute that the Bible gives to God, but that summarizes all the attributes, and you can fit any other attribute the Bible mentions into one of those ten categories. And you need to be able to think through those attributes, and this is exactly what we see going on in a passage such as Isaiah 40. Look at verse at the second half of verse 28. The first thing he goes to is the everlasting God. This brings in the attribute of his eternality. He is eternal life. God is beyond time. There never was a time when God did not exist. He created time. 
So He is eternal. He is everlasting. There's no beginning and there is no ending. Now, how does that relate to your particular problem? If God is everlasting, that means, especially in conjunction with His knowledge, which is where we end up at the, at, in the last phrase of this verse, then there never was a time when God did not know about every single problem that you and I will face in life. He is eternal. He has all knowledge. And therefore, whatever happens in your life was not a surprise to God. And therefore, he provided a solution for it from eternity past. So first, there's a reference to his eternality. Then he is called the Lord. And those are in uppercase letters. So that indicates that the original Hebrew is Yahweh, which we've studied, is the covenant name of God, that when you were a Jew and you read Yahweh, you were specifically reminded of the fact that it is a particular God. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has entered into a personal contractual relationship with Israel. This is not just some abstract deity, but this is the personal God of the Jews who called Israel into existence and made certain promises. So he is, it brings in the idea that he is faithful to his word and faithful to his covenants. He is the everlasting God, Yahweh. And then we move to the doctrine of the creator and creature distinction. See, you can't divorce creation from the character of God in problem solving. We're studying the doctrine of creation. Spent several months on it on Wednesday night in our study in Genesis. And so many Christians come up with the idea that somehow creation, that's just too controversial of a doctrine. We don't want to distract people with getting into a debate over creation and evolution. Yet if you remove God from that position of being the creator and eviscerate the creator-creature doctrine from the Old Testament and the New Testament, then you really don't have a basis for exercising the faith rest drill. So the writer here goes back to the creator-creature distinction. He is the, the creator of the ends of the earth. And that phrase, ends of the earth, is a metaphor, which means that, there's, that it includes everything. To the very ends, everything you can think of was created and came into existence by God. The act of creation and being the creator implies planning. It implies forethought. It implies the power to bring about that which was planned. It implies ability and it implies control over all of the details in order to bring that to pass. So we move from talking about God as eternal to talking about him as a faithful God who fulfills his promises, to the fact that he is the creator of the ends of the earth, which brings to bear the doctrine of his omnipotence. He is able to do what he uh, intends to do. This leads to the next clause, he neither faints nor is weary. God doesn't grow tired. God has unlimited power. He has infinite power. He can do whatever he uh, intends to do and whatever he plans to do. Now, before we get any further into this verse, we need to go back and look at the historical context. Why is it that this writer says, uh, brings this point to bear? Why does he say, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. Why does he say this? What's the context? What's going on in Israel? We have to understand something about the broad structure of Isaiah. Isaiah is divided into um, basically two sections. In the first section, which is Isaiah 1 through chapter 39, there's an emphasis on uh, God's judgment. In chapters 40 to 66, the emphasis is more on God's grace and deliverance. Well, what is going on in chapter 40? What's the historical situation? The situation envisioned in chapters 40 through 66 is what's taking place at the end of the Babylonian captivity. Now, what happened in the history of Israel is that God had told the Jews that if you disobey the Mosaic law and you disobey his word and you don't keep his commandments, 
then he's going to take them out of the land that he promised. On the other hand, if they obeyed God, God would keep them in the land, and it would be a land where they experienced tremendous prosperity and blessing. What happened was Israel continued to disobey God, and the first sign of divine discipline was that the kingdom was divided on Solomon's death into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom was dominated by apostasy. Of all the kings they had in the northern kingdom, every one of them took took the nation into idolatry. There wasn't one good king in the north. And in 722 B.C., Assyria overran them, and they were taken out in divine discipline and removed from the land. The southern kingdom fared a little better. They had a few good kings who followed the Lord, but the majority did not, and the people rejected the Lord. And so finally, in 586 B.C., God took them out of the country, out of, out of the land, in discipline. God used the Babylonians to come in and conquer them militarily, and then the people were taken from the land and resettled in Babylon. That's where Daniel was. Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah all have to do with that period known as the exile or the Babylonian captivity, which lasted from 586 B.C. to 536 B.C. And it's in this situation... As a result of military defeat, economic collapse, the loss of hearth and home, as the people are removed from the land and resettled in Babylon, that you have a tremendous amount of physical suffering and deprivations take place. They're outside the land, which is a picture of the fact that they are outside the place of blessing from God. So they are going through a tremendous amount of physical and mental suffering in life. So, the first thing we have to do whenever you hit a situation of suffering is to ask, what's the cause for that suffering? Last time we looked at nine different reasons presented in the Bible for why people suffer. So you have to ask the question, why do you suffer? There are two categories of suffering in in a broad sense. There's deserved suffering and there's undeserved suffering. Now, under deserved suffering, what I'm emphasizing is at some level, the suffering is the direct result of human volition. In undeserved suffering, you cannot trace it to specific um, decision that someone has made. And we went through these categories last time, and I just want to remind you of them, and you need to think them through whenever you go through uh, any particular area any particular area of suffering. First of all, there is Adamic responsibility. We go through suffering because Adam chose to sin. So this is related related to a human volitional decision. The second reason is uh, a personal volitional decision. You make a certain bad decision. This is the principle of volitional responsibility. Whatsoever man sows, that will he also reap. Third, there is divine discipline. This is when you are a believer, and not only are you suffering the normal consequences of your bad decision, but God intensifies those consequences through divine discipline. Fourth category has to do with the fact that you are connected to someone who is going through suffering for reason two or reason three. You're married to someone who has uh, been irresponsible with the use of the credit card, and now you're going to suffer because of that. Your children make some bad decisions, and now you have to pick up the uh, financial consequences from those bad decisions. Or perhaps you're connected to someone in terms of employment. You work for a corporation, and there's malfeasance on the part of management, and as a result, the company goes under, and now you're out of a job. But somehow you're connected to someone who has made bad decisions, and you're suffering the consequences. And then the, the fifth reason is that you are living in the cosmic system. And because you are in the cosmic system, 
you are going to suffer. You are in Satan's system, and you're going to suffer. So all of those relate to somebody's volition. Now, in terms of undeserved suffering, we have four categories. And the first category is that God brings suffering in the, in the life of an individual in order to wake them up to hear the gospel. So there's an evangelistic reason. A second reason that there is undeserved suffering is to learn doctrine. This is also known as providential preventative suffering, where God is teaching you certain things doctrinally. Psalm 119.71, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. Third reason you go through undeserved suffering is to be a witness to other human beings, to your neighbors, to your friends, and those around you. 1 Timothy 1.16. Fourth reason is to be a witness in the angelic conflict. Ephesians 3.10. And the fifth reason is to be able to comfort others with doctrine when they go through suffer, undeserved suffering. So you comfort others with the... Um, with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted, 2 Corinthians 1.4. Okay, now that's just a quick review. We've gone through that many, many times. Now, let's answer the question. You're a Jew, and you're in the Babylonian captivity. Now, why are you going through suffering? Is it deserved or is it undeserved? Is it the result of human volition, or is it not the result of a specific volitional decision? It's deserved suffering as a result of the negative volition of your forefathers. But now you're born, let's say you're born in the year 575 B.C. You were never into idolatry. Let's say your parents straightened up as a result of the exile. They've got doctrine uh, in their soul now, and they're, they're growing, and they're teaching doctrine in the home, and you're born in that home. Nevertheless, you're dealing with living in a situation where you're outside the land and you're dealing with all of the inequities and all of the suffering that would come from being a Jew living in Babylon during that time. So it's maybe you think that it's undeserved, but ultimately it's deserved because of the negative volition of your forefathers. So it's part of the reason for the suffering is personal volition, but it's being intensified because this is the application of the fifth cycle of discipline on the nation. So the reason you're going through suffering is divine discipline. So when you're thinking through the rationales of a promise, you need to think in terms of, okay, why am I going through this suffering? Is it the result of somebody's volitional decision, or, or is it unrelated to volition, and why is this taking place? What, what can I relate this to? Sometimes you can identify it. Sometimes you can't. You need to think it through, though. So we go through those rationales, and we see that, that Israel is faced with a divine discipline situation. They are they have been warned of the Babylonian captivity in the first thirty nine chapters of Isaiah, but in the last chapters, chapters forty through sixty six, Isaiah is taken out of his own time, which was the sixth century BC, and he is writing this to those who are in that disciplined generation. And it is a the entire section focuses on God's grace and his future restoration of the nation to the land and his deliverance of the nation, which eventually culminates in the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah, in Isaiah chapter 53. So what is embedded in this entire section of 40 through 66 is that God always operates on grace, even when we're in suffering. There's grace before discipline. There's grace during discipline. And there's grace after discipline. And the focus in this section is on God's grace after discipline. Now, the first 11 verses of chapter 40 focus on the future deliverance of Israel. Actually, these verses have a strong millennial overtone to them. And their ultimate fulfillment does not come to pass until the future. But in this historical perspective of the 6th century B.C., they still see this as one advent, like we've been teaching and going over in, in the first hour. In the Old Testament, they didn't see two different advents. They only saw one advent. 
And so God is speaking at the beginning of verse uh, at the beginning of verse one, and He says, "Comfort, yes, comfort my people," says your God. This is His call to Isaiah, that as a prophet He was to comfort the people. But remember, this isn't some sort of abstract comfort. Well, you know, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be nice. Just put your arm around them and give them a nice hug and a couple of warm fuzzies. The comfort comes from doctrine. The comfort comes from understanding the realities of why they're suffering and what they were to learn through the suffering in terms of uh, obedience to God. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, the concept of doubling is not what we think it means, which means not only did they pay for it once, but they paid for it twice. The idea is an idiom in Hebrew meaning full payment. When you pay double for something that made you paid in full, it's just an idiom. They paid double. So the grace is that once you are disciplined for personal disobedience, that when that's over with, there is restoration, and what is behind is put in the past. So we come to verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, in context, this is talking about what? A highway back to Jerusalem. Now, this verse is taken and applied by New Testament gospel writers to John the Baptist. But in its original interpretive framework, it's talking about preparing a way of return from the exiles to uh, to Jerusalem. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. And that's simply... Uh, picturesque language for leveling the road. You get out here with a, uh, a road grader and you level the high places and the low places so it's a smooth highway so that people could return. It, it visions that God will remove all of the obstacles to their return to the land. You can imagine that as we studied in Daniel before the fall of the Babylonian kingdom and see in Daniel I mean, in Isaiah 41 through 44, there is the prophecy about Cyrus coming. Cyrus the Persian who will cause the Jews to return to the land. If you were a Jew living in 540 B.C., you would be saying, how are we ever going to get back to the land in this situation under the Babylonian uh, establishment. The, the Babylonian Empire is not going to let us go back. Of course, in 539, Belteshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall, and uh, Cyrus defeats the uh, and Darius defeats the uh, uh, per, uh, the Babylonians, and you have the establishment of the Persian Empire, and then he passes a decree for the Jews to return to the land. So that is historically how God changed the circumstances. History is controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here we're reminded that there is a contrast between God and his power, pictured in his glory, and the limitations of flesh. And in verse 6, we read, the voice said, cry out, and he said, what shall I cry? So God gives to Isaiah the message, all flesh is grass, and all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Then the application, surely the people are grass. In other words, man cannot depend on flesh. Man cannot depend on mankind for succor or for sustenance. All flesh is easily destroyed. It's compared to grass. It's compared to flower, where the flower of the field, where if there's any adversity, any heat, if you go a certain amount of time without water, without nourishment, it just fades, withers, and is destroyed. In contrast, the Word of God never is destroyed. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's skip down to verse 11, uh, or verse 10. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Now, what, do we, what elements do we see in that verse? 
we see his arm, that's a symbol for his omnipotence. And we also see reward. Reward comes when? Reward comes in the future. So you see this orientation to future resolution. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with the young. The point is that even though you are going through suffering, even though you're going through torture, even though you're going through the most horrendous adversity, God is not lost control. He is working out his purposes, and he will bring about ultimate resolution, and he will care for you even in the midst of that crisis. And that leads the writer to focus on the character of God. And so, starting in verse 12, the focus shifts to God and his attributes, his power, his majesty, and his control of history. There are five rhetorical questions that are, that are asked. First of all, in verse 12, we read, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? All of verse 12 is the first question, and it has to do with measurement or calculation or quantification. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? This reminds us of that long series of questions that God asked Job in Job 38 and following where through these questions God brings out his power and majesty and he also points out the inability of man. In this particular verse we see the use of anthropomorphisms to communicate the immensity of God. An anthropomorphism is a figure of speech that attributes to God physical human characteristics, the characteristics of a human body, which he does not actually possess in order to communicate to man God's plans and purposes. So the idea of a hand, the idea of quantification and measurement is used to communicate something about God. Further, we see here the idea of God's immensity, Now, this is not an attribute of God we normally talk about, but you will find it discussed in various uh, systematic theologies. And immensity is related to God's transcendence, that he is bigger than creation. He is bigger than any of our problems. We can define immensity as that perfection of the divine being by which he transcends all spatial limitations and yet is present in every point of space with his whole being. Solomon declared, Heaven and highest heaven cannot contain thee. This is a reference to the immensity of God. He fills all places, and he is greater than all of the universe. He does not dwell on earth as he does in heaven. He doesn't uh, dwell in any location. He is greater than all all spatial locations. From this we conclude that God is transcendent. He is exalted above all space and time. And that reduces our problems to just a small little speck. So we have to understand who God is. All of these terms emphasize measurement, to measure the waters. All the waters of the earth is nothing, just like a little drop in the hollow of his hand. He can measure every drop, every atom, every molecule. If God can understand every drop, every molecule, and has measured every dimension of the water, then what about your problems? He's marked off the heavens by the span. We cannot measure the universe, but God measures it. He calculates the dust of the earth, not the grains of sand, but the dust. It's even smaller. It's more uh, minute. God calculates the dust of the earth by the measure. And he's weighed the mountains in the balance and hills in a pair of scales. Man can do none of these things. God, it's nothing for God to measure all of the dimensions of his, of his creation. Furthermore, in verse 13 we read, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? And in verses 13 and 14, these questions emphasize God's omniscience, His divine knowledge. This verse should be translated, or you should correct the translation, Who has directed the thinking of the Lord? 
The word here translated spirit is the Hebrew word ruach, which is normally translated spirit, but as I've stated both with regard to pneuma in the New Testament and ruach in the Old Testament, spirit has the idea also, or ruach has the idea of wind or breath, but it can also mean thinking or attitude, and it doesn't always mean the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. And here it has more the idea of thinking. Who has directed or taught God? No one. He doesn't need to be taught. And then the third question, or as his counselor, who has informed him? There's no one or nothing greater than God. And then in Isaiah 40:14, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? There is no one to whom God goes for information. So verses 13 and 14 emphasize that divine omniscience. He knows everything. And then the fifth rhetorical question in this section, and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. Now, what idea just came in here? Justice. Always, when you have adversity, there's always a challenge to the fairness and the justice of God. We'll see that in just a minute. So, then in Isaiah 40:15 through 17, it compares the immensity of God to what's going on historically. The nations are a drop in a bucket. They're just a small dust on the scales. In the ancient world, they didn't matter if there was a little extra dust or water on the, on the vegetables or on the meat that you weighed in the marketplace. That was counted as insignificant. The scales weren't that precise. So any little dust or any extra dirt there was weighed along with everything else and was not counted as being of significance. So the point of the image is that all of man's plans, all of man's power, all of the uh, connivings and schemings of nations is nothing in the sight of God. Then we skip down and let's go back to our context in verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, his eternal life, the Lord, his covenant faithfulness, the creator of the ends of the earth, that means he is the planner, he is the creator, he is in control of everything. He neither faints nor is weary. This relates to his omnipotence. Nothing tires him out. He's not like a man to grow tired or weary. So that relates to his omnipotence. And then his understanding is unsearchable. He knows everything. Now, why does... Why does Isaiah say this? Because of the question that's raised in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? What's, what's going on? In the context of the, di- of the discipline, you have these whiners. God's forgotten about me. Why is God not taking care of the problem? Why isn't God taking care of me? Why isn't God providing the solution? And so Isaiah reminds them of who God is and his attributes, that he is the one that even in the midst of overpowering adversity, verse 29, it is God who gives power to the weak. It's not your power, it's God's power. It's not your ability, it's God's ability. He says, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. And this is the context for the promise. See, you work through the rationale. The rationale helps you to understand that what undergirds the promise is the character of God, his sovereignty. He is the creator of all things. He is eternal. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. Because of all these things, God is greater than our problems. God knew about our problems from eternity past, and therefore God has provided a solution for those problems. Because God is who he is, we can then relax in the midst of the situation, and we can wait on him. When we do that, there is an exchange of strength. We don't just increase our strength. It's not our strength. It is God's strength. This is when we come to that third point in the faith rest drill of claiming a doctrinal conclusion. Sometimes you have to go through that rationale again and again and again before it finally sinks home, and all of a sudden you just reach a point where there is a firm conviction in your soul that this is true. That's when you reach that conclusion. It is not just an abstract conclusion. Yeah, I know that's what it says. But this is a conclusion that is true in your soul. And at that point, you completely relax and rest in the Lord. 
And the result of that exchange of strength, the result is the ability to endure with strength whatever testing or struggle or adversity comes in your life. Well, this is much as background for the next promise we'll look at, which is in the, uh, Isaiah uh, 41.10. And it's the same section. There's no chapter break in the original, and we'll come back and look at that and connect that to other promises related to fear, worry, and anxiety next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for these promises that you have given us for the fact that they are uh, built upon your unchangeable character and your faithfulness. Father, we thank you for your integrity that even though we at times think that you may not be dealing fairly with us, that events that we encounter in life are, are unjust and perhaps that you have forgotten about us, we know indeed that this is not true, that you are working in and through these circumstances to produce in us spiritual growth and dependence upon you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to be more diligent in the exercise of the faith rest drill. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny by simply putting your faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is based on the work that Jesus Christ performed on the cross. And when you put your faith in him, God gives you his own righteousness. And it is that righteousness, that imputed righteousness, that is the basis of your salvation. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.